So if you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Acts 4 and Acts 5 tonight. Uh, we read up until the end of Acts 4 last week, but we're going to back up and read verses 32 through 37, which is going to lead us into chapter 5. I know there's a chapter divider in between Acts 4 and 5, but these two passages, verse 32 and 37 uh, of 4 and verse 1 through 11 of 5, these two passages must be studied together. Now, you know, again, you can read them separately and you'll be blessed. We did last week. Um, but I think that divine inspiration, no doubt, placed them together, back to back, uh, because they, are, they, they give a very specific message. They're contrast of each other. Uh, they, they're opposites of each other, but, which is why I think it's all the more important that we read them together and study them together. Um, I've heard them preached apart. I've rarely heard them, heard them preached together. I was in a, a, a class uh, in, in, uh, in seminary years and years ago, and I w- had never put these two together. I'd always read them separately, and then it dawned on me in class that night. I thought, you know, these things really, th- th- there's, there's, a jo- there's a message that God wants to give us from these two together. And I brought it up in class, and, and, and it really kind of led to a conversation that uh, changed the way that I read this text and changed the way that I, I, I feel like I should preach this text. So, tonight, here we are. Uh, But you've heard some of these things before, so this is not a lot of new information, but it is a lot of true information, which makes it worth repeating. Um, We looked again, we looked at Acts 4 last week, uh, 32 through 37, is an extension of the bold request that was prayed when the disciples were let out of prison. They were were sent home from court. They weren't uh, killed, of course. They were released. They said, hey, don't preach in the name of Jesus anymore. They they threatened them, and the disciples went home and, and, and dusted that threat off of them, and then they got to start, they got to praying, and we read that radical, uh, just otherworldly prayer last week, where they pray for boldness that they might continue to be the church that they've been called to be. And what really is it, what we marveled at last week, and, and we concluded this last week, and I want to reiterate tonight that their commitment to community did as much to denote the disciples' boldness as their bravery on the mission field did. So my point is, and what I think we should really gather from this is, we often talk about their bravery on the mission field, their defiance before the authorities, their persistence in the public whenever they were under threat and under accusations and under uh, at risk of losing their lives even. And and that needs to be given attention to. And they're lauded for that bravery and for that courage and for the boldness that was on display. But in fact, they were just as bold in the actions they took and in the lifestyles they were living in the church community. In fact, we dismiss this text, verse 32 through 37, we dismiss this text as being an aberration or uh, having, or we have not seen it established as the norm in churches ever since. And we think that for that matter, or for that reason, it's just not that important and that it somehow isn't connected with that request for boldness, but it absolutely is. Uh, and, and honestly, the fact that this isn't the norm the fact that this is such a, a, an outlier in the way the church operates, in the culture the church builds and, and, and fosters, that really suggests just how lack, lacking we are in the boldness department that we fail to stand up to ourselves, me included, we fail to stand up to ourselves and to the systems of this world that have their hooks in us so deeply I think anyone who reads the whole Bible, especially the New Testament, with sincere eyes, has to say that the scene on display in Acts 4 at the end of the chapter is the natural extension and the destination of the church that Jesus set out to build, fitting with his ethics, with his teachings, with what the prophets taught, and what the apostles would teach. Yet again, we read this through eyes that have economic filters and political filters, which are really just fancy ways to say we read this with fallen, sinful, incomplete eyes. The more I read the Bible, 
And you've heard this in my preaching, I'm sure. The more I read the Bible, the more I submit myself to the teaching of the law, of the prophets, of Jesus and the apostles. The more I realize how far we have to go when it comes to measuring up to God's intentions for his faith community. You've heard me preach these things when we talked about the tabernacle and the temple community, when we've preached through the prophets, and clearly in the New Testament. I, I, I say this with all seriousness. I am stunned and speechless every time I read Acts 4, verse 32 through 37. And I'm even more speechless when I attempt to preach on it. So I want you to hear these verses. And I just, again, we we read this and we put an asterisk on this passage as if it was a one-time thing or as if it was just something that was only necessary for them and then and there and as if it's something that really is is, is just such a rare thing or, or an unnecessary thing but I just want you to read this and I want you to ask yourself why would people make the decisions that they made in this passage and having made the decisions they made would we make the same decisions if we came to the same conclusion that they arrived at in this passage just think about the ramifications of the choices they made and the legacy and and, and the shadow this leaves on us. And there is nowhere in the Bible that says you must do what they did. So don't hear me preach that. But there is plenty in the Bible that says what they did was absolutely the right thing to do. So do with that what you want. And hopefully the rest of the message will make a lot more sense. So verse 32. Now, in the multitude of those who believed, that means in the church, there were, were of the, those who believed were of one heart and one soul. So there's a unity. There's a joinness of the community. Neither did anyone say that anything, any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common, which, I mean, comes out of nowhere, honestly. Just random, like, why, you know, what has this got to do with being Christians? And what's this got to do with being the church? And is this some socioeconomic, you know, commentary that, that, that someone's trying to force into our faith? And, and, and again, people say what they, people will go from all different places, go to all different places with this. But what the Bible tells us is they were unified and they begin to see their own things or they begin to see their possessions as if they weren't their own. And they begin to share things. Now, that's, again... Crazy thing to, to think about. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. So as a consequence of their sharing and their communal uh, uh, lifestyle was this power from God. You can't disconnect those two verses. 34. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold. So let me make this very clear. It doesn't say... Nobody lacked anything because God just kept opening heaven and pouring things out. What, is, what does it say was the reason for which no one lacked something? Because people kept giving stuff. Right? They sold their homes. Who would do that? They sold their land. Who would do that? And they brought the proceeds to the church. Who, who would do that? Verse 35, and they laid them at the apostles' feet, not because they were giving them to them, but they were giving them to the leaders of the church, to the church. And they distributed to each as anyone they had need. And Joseph, or Barnabas, uh, as he was called, translated son of encouragement. Now Barnabas, that will, this is the same Barnabas that becomes a companion of Paul, so he becomes an important guy, and he's important already. 
uh, son of encouragement. He was a Levite, so underline that, highlight that, make a big, big deal about that. We'll get to that later, but don't let me forget. He's a Levite the country, of the country of Cyprus. So he's a Levite that, was from out of t- that had moved out of town, came back in, apparently had inherited some land that maybe he just found out about, and he comes home to settle the estate, and he sees this Jesus movement, and he joins it, and wow, things are, things are going uh, pretty big here. So he joins it, and he sells his land and gives it to the church, verse 37. Having land, he sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So I, I, I could go all night about this. Maybe what's most stunning about this text and about the community it depicts is this. And I can't, I can't emphasize this enough. Nobody, nobody made a single person do this. Is there anywhere in this text where somebody said, guys, this is what we've got to do. We've got to take up a love offering. We've got to make, have a capital campaign. We've got to do this. No one stood up at a church service or quoted the Bible and said, this is what we've got to do. But God undeniably moved every single person to do this. It's pretty big, isn't it? Nobody made anybody do this, but God moved everybody to do this. That's a big hello, isn't it? There was just this collective spirit moving through them and in them that caused them to come together. Now, where did this all start? It started back in Acts 4, verse 23, when they started praying. And what was their prayer? Lord, make us bold. And what was the result of their prayer, make us bold? They became one. That's what verse 34, 32 teaches us. They prayed, Lord, make us bold, back in verse 29. And then, verse 32, God answered that. He made them one. Now, that might not seem like there's a connection there, but there absolutely is. So we have this guidance, I think, for when we pray. So when we pray, Lord, make us bold, we can go ahead and say, Lord, make us one, because we see there's a connection. Now, this shouldn't be too far into us. This is in line with what Jesus said would define true faith and true believers in the true church. He consistently taught, echoing the prophets, echoed by the apostles, that horizontal love for one another is validation of vertical love for God. Jesus said over and over again, they'll know you by how you love one another, right? That by this they'll know that you are mine, by your love for one another. So he said that your horizontal you know, companionship, your horizontal love is going to confirm your vertical love. So you may wonder, is this natural? Because it doesn't come natural, does it? There's a reason why Jesus had to tell people to do it so much, because this isn't what we naturally want to do. Not that we don't like people. Well, we don't like all, we don't not like all people, right? We just don't like some people, but we like some people, (laughs) But it's still not natural to love people like this. Even your best friends, even your, even your spouse, right? Just kidding. I, I, not, I wasn't talking about Lindsay, I was talking about y'all and y'all spouses. It's just unnatural to love people like that, is it? I mean, come on. You know, spouses don't even have everything in common. So, you know, I'm not going on there. I'm not going to preach that. Uh, it's just not natural. And Jesus said, that's why he preaches so much. Hey, this is not natural, so I'm going to tell you to do it. You may wonder... It's not natural. That's why they had to pray for it, but they had to know it was where God was leading them. They prayed for it, but they had to know this was where God was going to lead them, or they suspected it. Authentic believing in Jesus has two effects. Now, John Piper taught on this a long time ago, and and I'll show you some, some of his notes with you in the next few minutes. 
Authentic believing in Jesus has two effects. Verse 32 tells us the first of those effects. The multitude who believed had one heart and one soul. The first effect, believing in Jesus, tightens the heart's relationship to people. You, you can't get away, away from that. This is why it's so big that, you, you know, if you're a Christian, you're going to be in church. You know why you're going to be in church? Because that's where people are. That's where the community is. But bigger than just coming to church on Sundays. Believing in Jesus tightens the relationship to people, especially other Christians. When you become united to Jesus by faith, you will become united to people by love. Now, if that's not the trajectory you're on, then something's wrong. And if that's not the trajectory somebody else is on, they can tell you they love Jesus all day long, but if they don't, not, they don't start drifting toward loving people and they actually are actively hating people, they don't love Jesus. And you can tell them I said that. Don't tell them I said that, but you can tell them you said that because you can notice it too. It's just not possible. So then comes the other effect, as the rest of that verse says. They sold their possessions. So they were one heart, one soul, but then neither did anyone say that the things they, he possessed were his own or her own. So the second effect of trusting in Jesus is this. The heart is loosened in its relationship to things. So tightened in its relationship to people. Loosened, remember Jesus said you'll, tight, you'll, you'll bind some things and loose some things. This is what he's talking about. You'll tighten your relationship to people and you'll loosen your relationship to things. The things. I love things, don't you? <laughs> Sometimes more than people, but that's the problem. Faith in Christ creates a bond of love to people, and it cuts, uh, this cuts, doesn't it? It cuts the bond of love we have for things. This is undeniably clear by this passage, as well as, though, as, the, well as through the overall witness of the whole book of Acts and the early church's example. So I, I know I don't usually ask unavoidable, uncomfortable questions till the end, but we got to ask this up front because we're going to get into see some more uncomfortable things as we go forward. I got to ask you, has our faith in God and our love for God increased our commitment for his people and increased our compassion for lost people? Now, if you're, you know, I'm not condemning you. I'm not saying you don't love God and you don't have faith in God. If your answer is, I don't know. <laughs> If your answer is outright no, then maybe we need to talk. But if your answer is, that's complicated. I understand it. I am there with you. Has your faith in God and has your, faith, has your love for God tightened your commitment for his people? Has it increased your compassion for his people and for people that are not yet his? Just answer that in your own heart and be honest. Second question. Has our love for and commitment to his community loosened our love for and bond to consumption? As in things, being controlled by things and living for things, and I'm only here because I need to consume more things. Or Y'all know what I'm talking about. And again, yes or no? This one's even harder. We thought the last one was hard, but this one's even harder, isn't it? Has our bond for, of, of love for his community loosened our bond for love for consumption and for things? If you don't have good answers to these questions, why do you think that is? Can I help get you there? No, you know, I'm going to offer advice anyway, so maybe at least listen. Maybe it'll help. I'm not denying your love for God. I'm not denying your love for his church. Nobody can do that. But could it be that we just naturally resist this draw towards selflessness and sacrifice? 
Could it be? Uh, could it be that we love God and we love his people and we want to put his people first, but we just have some resistance when it comes to making these kind of connections? I mean, we, we, we're all on board up until verse 32, and then all of a sudden unified him with people means divesting of things, and it just starts, you know, we're not ready for that. I mean, come on, can we back up a little bit? Let's talk about wonders and, and, and signs and wonders of God and power of God and assembly and great services, but all of a sudden you're taking me to this place, and I don't know if I'm ready to go there yet. So let's just be honest and say our hearts resist this, doesn't, don't they? We don't necessarily feel too good about being selfless and sacrificial. You bet we resist. Of course we resist. We have both feet on the brakes, don't we? This is where we have to count the cost, and I can't sugarcoat this as much as I'm trying to be respectful and understanding. I, I, my, my own heart wants me to sugarcoat it, but I can't. This is where we have to count the cost, weigh our options, and we are confronted with the true reality of discipleship. That is what is on display in Acts 4. And what makes us look the most foreign, the most, you know, far from true disciples when we measure our own lives with this passage. It's just, it's just the way it is. We see here, and we're confronted with true discipleship, what looks mostly reckless is actually the utmost righteous. But our minds are trained to see the world so differently than God wants us to. We think this is just foolish and unnecessary. They weren't driven by reckless abandon, but by a righteous advocacy, being compelled to show the world within and outside the community that they mattered to God and that their lives had value and they wanted to establish this church that just demonstrated the true heart of Jesus. And it led them to do this. As much as you say, well, that was unnecessary, they didn't think so. They thought it was necessary. Here's just what we observe in Acts. And this is just the beginning of it, but here's what we observe in this text. We observe over and over again, we see the church being so selfless, so sacrificial, and so focused on everyone but themselves. That, that's just the way it is in this book. I mean, you can, you can turn it sideways and get something else out of it, maybe, but that's just, you can't, you can't do that with this text. The reason why that they are so sacrificial, so selfless, and so focused on everyone but themselves, because they felt the weight, they felt the weight of Jesus cross, and they felt the responsibility of their witness, and they felt the weight of the Christian faith. Their knowledge did not make them feel superior or exempt from this sort of life. It made them feel obligated and in debt to those to whom they had been joined in Christ and to those that remained apart from Christ. That's, that's what led them to this place. They felt like as if they, were, they owed and were obligated to be opened up and, and, and to be living this sacrificial way in a way that would benefit the community of God, in a way that would reach and minister to those apart from the community of God. You know, i got to ask us, from where, we are, from where we are gathered, we can count our blessings as both Americans and as Christians so very easily. And we can see that this passage does not describe the American church. It just doesn't. And that's not a knock on America. I'm just talking about America because it's where we're at. So, I mean, I can, talk, I can say 21st century. I can say whatever you want to put there. But this just doesn't... I mean, the answer to these questions, is this the culture uh, of our church today? 
Next slide. Is this what defines Christianity today? Well, of course it's not what defines us and what, not, what our culture looks like. It just is foreign from us. We often cite Acts as the book the church needs to get back to and, 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 and we want to feel the Spirit of God like they felt the Spirit of God, but we hardly ever use it to, 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 to draw us into this selfless, sacrificial lifestyle, do we? And we want to see the signs and the wonders and the miracles and, you know, I believe God can do all those things, but the message from this text that the Holy Spirit wants to, the work He wants to do in our lives He's not just here to serve and to protect and to do all the things that, that we might think of. He's here to lead us into this sort of sacrificial, selfless community. And, and from what I gather, this is what is required for the church to make the impact that it can, it can and is able to make. You know... Oftentimes we hear the Holy Spirit and we hear being filled with the Holy Spirit. We hear that being taught. Uh, we hear it taught as a means for gain. We hear people, there's a lot of people on network television that, that they'll say things like, you know, if you're really filled with the Holy Spirit, you'll have stuff and you'll have more stuff and you'll just have so much stuff you won't be able to count all the stuff that you have. That's not what Acts teaches. I mean, it's not. Now, you can quote Old Testament passages all day long and you can get that stuff and people can, you know, people can get by with that. But that's not what I teach and that's not what Acts teaches. In, in fact, in Acts, here's what we find. We find a denouncing of prosperity and gain. Now, I don't, read a t I don't read at all about anybody not having what they needed. But I, I also never read about anybody using their faith as a means of prosperity and gain or making that the whole goal. Literally, they gave up what they had worked for. Why? And, and let me make this very clear. It wasn't, and it's not because possessions are bad. It's because they had a relationship with God through Jesus, and they had given, and he had given them a commission to show the world that the world could have one too. And the disciples found that knowing Jesus was so much more fulfilling and satisfying than holding on to stuff that they realized could be used to help further the mission. Again, nobody made them do this. And I'm not saying you need to do this. But they came to the conclusion that by getting rid of the baggage that they once thought was everything that mattered to them, they realized that stuff was a means to furthering the mission, not a means to the end. If that makes sense. Not a means to their own kingdom's gain. They found out it was a means to the kingdom of God's gain. Now, they gave and they gave and they gave until they literally had no more to give. And when their flesh and blood was all they had left to give, they gave that too. Isn't that humbling? But isn't it also inspiring and isn't it also convicting? All they had was Jesus. And turns out he was all they needed. I've said this and I'll continue to say this, but this is such an important time for the church in America. The rhetoric of secular culture is as toxic and divisive as ever. Even in the church, there is so much arrogance and intolerance and selfishness. We stand across from each other, lecturing each other into what end we can make a difference if we look at, look at this text and realize this is a pathway for us to blaze a trail and make an impact. The church must be different and the church can be different. So here's where all this leads to. So we've got just a few minutes left to cover this, but all this was really meant to set up 
this one thing. There's a contrast that I want to show you between Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira. These stories must be studied together for us to truly appreciate them. And we haven't read the Ananias story yet, but we'll get there. We, we have to have a little context to understand this first profile, though, to understand the, the gravity of this first one. Of the tribes of Israel, remember, two tribes weren't actually sons of Jacob, even though Jacob had 12 sons, and I'm going somewhere with this. The tribes of Israel, to review, Reuben, Simeon, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, and who are these guys? Ephraim and Manasseh, they were sons of Joseph. Joseph got a double portion. So instead of there being a tribe of Joseph, there was a tribe of Ephraim and Manasseh, sons of Joseph. But Jacob had 12 sons, didn't he? Yeah. But that just means there's just 10 sons plus two of Joseph. So what about the other two? Well, one was Joseph, of course, but then there was another one named Levi. Levi was the tribe from which Moses and Aaron came. They were the priestly tribe. They did not receive any land inheritance, and thus they had no territory named after them. They had no territory to call their own. Deuteronomy 10 tells us that, that at that time the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to minister to him, to bless his name to this day. Therefore, Levi has no portion or inheritance with his brothers. The Lord is his inheritance. That's what you say when you don't want to give somebody something, isn't it? It wasn't true for Levi, though. They really were blessed by God, by serving the community, by being part of the temple. But they didn't have any land. They never owned any land. They never inherited any land. If a Levite ever came in possession of land, it was a miracle and they must have been oh so fortunate. And if they ever got their grubby hands on some land, they would never, underline, never let it go. Now you see where this is going. What makes Barnabas' decision so remarkable, he was a Levite who inherited some land, came back to Israel to deal with the estate, and along the way, he heard of Jesus and got saved. And here he is in the church community, the only Levite probably in, in, the, in the area who had some land to his name. And all of a sudden, the Spirit of God says, Hey, Barnabas, how about that land? Barnabas didn't skip a beat, didn't think twice about it. He sold it and gave all the proceeds to the church. That is absolutely breathtaking when you understand how, how just otherworldly it was for him to make that decision. Clearly, he had found something in Jesus that was much greater than the land this world gave him. So i got to ask you, if this kind of joy and contentment is available, don't you want it? Don't you? Somebody probably said, Barnabas, you don't understand what this land will do for you. He says, I don't think you understand what Jesus has done for me. Maybe we'll never get to experience this kind of joy and contentment if we don't start mimicking those who showed us how to get it. Now, this has led us to this very uncomfortable conclusion. Acts 5, verse 1 through 11. Notice it starts with the word but because you're supposed to read it 
Barnabas just sold his land. He brought the money to the apostles' feet. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession as well. Well, we see where this is going. This, they're just continuing to bring the money in. But he kept back part of the proceeds. Now, we don't know how much. 10%, 90%, I don't know. It doesn't tell us. His wife also being aware of it, of course, brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. So notice it's just the same parallel from the previous passage. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and kept back part of the price of the land for yourself? Well, that's a way to greet somebody giving an offering, isn't it? Why has Satan... People talk about wanting to have the apostles' power. I don't want that. I don't want that kind of knowledge. I mean, I'll take everything else, but I don't want that. I don't want to know that kind of stuff. <laughs> Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon those who heard these things. I bet great fear did indeed come upon those who heard these things. And the young man arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. It was three hours later, not three days later, three hours later, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. Hey, have you seen Ananias lately? And Peter says, well, of course I have. Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, yes, for so much. And Peter said, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, at, look the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. I mean, talk about, I mean, that's some boldness. He ain't got to answer this prayer, that's for sure. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came and found her dead and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. At least they got to be buried together. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. Now there's a reason why if most of your Acts Bible studies conveniently skip those 11 verses because it just kind of throws a wet rag on the whole conversation, doesn't it? This is maybe the most uncomfortable text in all of the scriptures, more so than the scenes of judgment over the great wicked cities in the Old Testament, more so than the end-time scenes depicting judgment against the unsaved. You know why it is the most uncomfortable text for a Christian to read? Because we aren't in the categories of Sodom and Gomorrah or those that are going to hell, but we could, especially, we could absolutely and easily be in this category, couldn't we? Again, again, keep in mind, there was no written mandate from the church about giving. There isn't one scripture used here or even in the New Testament that says you've got to do this stuff. But there was an undeniable movement of God within the church that was calling people to give. Peter did not say, have you not read? The Bible says you should do this and you haven't done this, therefore you're going to die. Peter said, the Holy Spirit has clearly been working in our company and you resisted it and you gave in to this lie that there was something better to hold on to and that's going to cost you everything. You know why this, is, this sent great fear throughout the whole church? As verse 5 and verse 11 says. The same reason why when Jesus said to the twelve the night before he died, remember when he said, one of y'all is going to betray me? And remember how they responded? 
truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, Is it I, Lord? Because it is in all of us to do this very thing, to hold back on God and justify it with even Scripture. They admitted, we might deny you if we get pressed tightly. We might deny you if we get in a bind and don't, don't have a good way out. They confessed, it is in me to deny you, Jesus. I am worried that it might be me. And I think the reason why this convicts us so much is because it is in us to do what they did. And again, again, we don't even know exactly you know, why God, you know, we don't know what God was doing in this community necessarily. We just know that everybody was given everything, and they, and they didn't. Now, what do I think the moral of the story is? I think the moral of the story is this. God forbid we quench the Spirit of God when He's moving. He was not allowing anyone to stand in the way of building His church. Now that makes us wonder, is the, the, is the fact that this doesn't happen on a regular basis, is that a sign that God has had mercy on the church? I think so. But it, is it also a sign that the church has hardened its heart and gotten away from where it's supposed to be, and therefore God just kind of let it go? I think that's also true. But what I'm sure is that we have quenched His Spirit, haven't we? You see, what was, what's going on in this, in this passage is God was calling for an all-or-nothing discipleship. He would not settle for anything less because he knew that we would not be satisfied with anything less. You hear that? He didn't settle for halfway or for part of it. He said you got to do it all or nothing because he knew we would not truly be satisfied if we only gave a little bit. You say, well, you know, the Bible says only got to give 10% and only got to come on Sundays. I mean, hey, there's, you know, I know what I can be satisfied with, Justin. Do you? See, religion gives us a little bit of an option out, doesn't it? Religion gives us an, an opportunity to stay in the world and visit God every once in a while and give him a little bit just to pacify him. But that's not what Christianity is. Yes, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a faith of forgiveness and mercy and grace by all means, but it's also an invitation to have something that the world can't give us. And what, what, God, what God was doing in the early church was he was making it very clear he wants us to be all in because he wants us to get all that he's got. So what do we do with this on this side of the 21st century? I think we must join together in prayer and ask God to show us the true joy of this all-in way of discipleship. And I don't know what God will have us to do. He may very well have us do what they did in verse 32 to 37. And he may very well hold us to the consequences that he did Ananias and Sapphira if we resist. I'm not saying he won't do that because he's done it before. I just know that we must seek him and be open to God leading us to do whatever pleases him, knowing that it will also please us the most. You know, I don't, here's the thing. I'm not afraid of God's wrath if I don't do this. I'm not, because I'm saved and I know that I'm saved and I know that I'm not in line of judgment. 
But I do fear my own foolishness and selfishness getting the best of me and keeping the best that God has to offer from me. I absolutely am afraid of that. And I know myself. I will let it happen. And I will stack up some stuff on a shelf and I'll look at it and I'll smile and I'll feel good about myself because I got something. I'll pad my wallet and I'll check some numbers on a bank account and I'll look at some deeds of land and I'll feel good. But deep down I'll feel real bad. You see, Ananias and Sapphira, they weren't judged for owning possessions. They were judged because their possessions owned them. That's why they were judged. It's the classic case that Jesus so often addressed. We cannot serve both God and possessions. Matthew 6, 24 tells us that. It's impossible. His solution is always give, 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 give it all away. Why? Because in giving you find something better. You lay up treasure in heaven, but also you find true joy on earth. The alternative is that we end up living out some version of the rich fool that said this one night. He will say to my soul, now this is where we always go wrong. Don't tell your soul something like this because you don't know what your soul needs. God does. We think we know what our souls need. Oh, I'll say to my soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry because you've got it made. But God said to him, fool. This night your soul's required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? He said, so, this, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. What does that mean? It means when God opens a door to find true joy and it, and it may require giving up everything, being rich toward God says, I'm going to trade in these material riches for eternal riches. Barnabas was rich toward God. Ananias and Sapphira were impoverished. So years later, the Apostle Paul would write these few verses, I think, that summarize this text better than I can. As for the rich in this present age, you say, well, I'm not rich. Well, listen, the Levite, Barnabas wasn't rich, but he found some land, and all of a sudden he became rich. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us everything to enjoy. Why did you get it? Because God wants you to enjoy it. But it may be that he wants you to enjoy giving it away. Now that's just maybe. He may want you to enjoy giving it. They are to do good, be rich in good works, be generous and ready to share. We don't like sharing. We didn't like it in kindergarten and we hate it now. Be ready to share. Thus storing up treasure for themselves, a good foundation for the future because the foundation we've got on this side is not good. A good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of what is truly life. That is an imperfect sermon by an imperfect person. The best attempt I can do at preaching a text that is too good for me. A text that most would avoid, and I have before. A text that I don't have all the answers to, and a text I don't completely understand, but a text that I have got to wrestle with. I think the best way to end this is, are you a Barnabas, or are you an Ananias and Sapphira? Which one are you? It's got to be all or nothing, doesn't it? You see, it has to be all or nothing so that we can get all of what God has for us. So let's not hold back on God. 
because God does not want to hold back on us. This isn't just about money. It's about everything. And God wants to give us far more than we think we could ever get on this side in this life. You've made the right decision to give your life to Jesus. You've made the right decision to be in his church. You've made the right decision to invest in his kingdom. Don't quench that spirit as God leads you to make eternal decisions to grab hold of eternal life. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for the help to preach this text. Lord, I don't preach this with pride or arrogance so as to suggest that I have truly transcended from the flesh to the spirit in this area because I haven't. I, I don't know the hearts of Ananias and Sapphira, but I can't really say that I'm any better than them, God. I've held back on you. I've not given, whether finances or time or just in, in my life, I've, not, I've held back more than I've given. I've justified holding back in the name of Scripture. I've used religion to get me out of doing more than I, I want to. I, I, I'm as guilty as these guys were, and I don't know why you spared me and not them. And could it be that in today's world that you're just more merciful? Or could it be that my heart, our hearts are just hardened and we just have lost touch? I don't know. But I do know that I read this text and I read about people that were so sold out and they were willing to cash out all that they had because they were willing to invest in your kingdom and see that there was better prizes to gain through that. And God, I don't know if that's possible for us to get that joy and that contentment that they got, but if it is possible, could you help us dart down that road? Could you help us see the true treasure and the true prize and take steps toward that, even if it means loosening our grip on things? God, humble our hearts, but help us, Lord, to be loving and communicating this because there's a lot of people that they're far from this, and we're not close ourselves. But, Lord, help us to get a little bit of Barnabas in us tonight and help us to take steps toward this truly be rich, ready to share, eternal riches way of living. We ask all of this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.